Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Please have a seat. Thank you, guys. Amazing songs. Now we're going to find out what the Bible says about where all that theology came from. Great day here at Grace. We're going to learn from the book of Philippians. We're in our series together. Let me tell you a story before we get going. Uh, when I was in high school, and I just had a, a yeah, I don't know, there's about six years in there where our family had a little catamaran. Catamaran is a is a sailboat that has two hulls. It, it, this boat is built for speed, okay? It, they're sleek and narrow, super light hulls, and they have two of them so that it can uh, stabilize the tallest mass to center pole as possible so it can hold the largest sail as possible. So the little bit of, not, not much in the water, a whole lot of wind in the sail. I had one of these for a few years, and I think we were on a Christmas break, maybe a spring break, had some old friends in from out of town, and the, the flags were just popping. They, they, it was windy, okay? And so I said, hey, let's go, uh, Bruce and Jerry, let's, let's go sailing. And they said, you bet, let's go. I learned three things on this little three-hour tour of mine, and I'd like to share those things with you. I think we, all, we could all learn from this. One, that if, uh, if it's uh, noticeably windy inside, in the city, it's extremely windy on an open lake. That's a fact. Two, if the government posts a wi- severe wind warning on that lake, you are not supposed to sail on that lake, that said lake, especially if you are in a catamaran. And third, this one's a little more complicated, but I told you it's a catamaran, right? So there's two holes, and, and it is, it is a, it's a difficult shift to maneuver because you have to pull both of these holes around whenever you turn. Okay, that, it's, a, it's, it's a nautical fact that if you were to ever sail this kind of catamaran, and you chose to only use one sail, you have to have the front sail. There's a front sail that's kind of small and a back sail that's very big. You have to have the front sail to pull the front, the two pontoons around. Now, when we got to the lake, we realized how incredibly windy it was. It was because of the white caps that told us. We thought we should only, we should only use one sail, and we chose the back sail. So, uh, we cast off. It was Bruce and Jerry and myself, and uh, we were 17 seconds out, and we realized that if we were going to live, we had better get back to shore. <clears throat> At 19 uh, seconds out, we came to realize and believe in the nautical fact that if you don't have a front sail on a catamaran, you can't steer it. And then about 48 seconds out, uh, we were starting to believe that a catamaran can fly. <clears throat> And it was, it was getting airborne, and so I told, you know, at this point, Bruce is hugging the mast and, and just crying. And so I said to Jerry, I said, Jerry, you got to harden us up, and you got to go out on that trapeze and bring this boat back down. And so it's built this way, so you can hang way out. Jerry was uh, the linebacker for the Air Force Academy. He's a big, strong guy, pretty dense, and, so, and he did crazy things. So he's out there, out on the trapeze, trying to pull this boat in. That's how it looks, right? Except there's white caps all around us. And uh, at, at this point, we're starting to get pretty scared because all of this is happening uh, while we're in a cove. We haven't even hit open water yet. 
And so I yelled to Bruce, you got to find another boat out here to help us because we can't steer and we're, you know, Jerry's holding us down. And Bruce was just, he says, we're the only three people stupid enough to be out here. <clears throat> and then pow, the cable broke that Jerry was hanging from. Yeah. <laughs> See you, Jerry. And, uh, I, he fell splash in the winter water, and as we were, we were blazing by him, he barely grabbed the last bit of the, of the left uh, rudder and just hung on for life, and he could he was that strong. And, that, and, then, and then we realized, this is the closest to steering we've had since we've been out here. <laughs> because he was, he, now he was dragging the boat, right? And it was kind of moving left. It's like, yeah, keep it going. And so we crash landed into this island out kind of in the middle before we got out to the water. And that we call, we're calling that a success. So we, cause, because then we could drop the sail. And this time, uh, poor Bruce is just pitifully crying and screaming. And uh, we put him at the steering wheel while, while Jerry and I got a pontoon inch and each. And we, we swam it back to shore. A few things I learned is one, never go sailing with Bruce. He's a pansy. <laughs> but, but that's not for you. This, that was too much weather for that boat. That's what you need to hear. That was too much weather for that boat. If you want to sail or even a motorboat in rough water, you need a deep hole. Everything this catamaran is not. You need a deep hole, and that hole needs to be, have a, what's called a ballast. And a ballast is when you go to the... the, the furthest part down into the water, and you fill it with something that's heavy. Sometimes they'll fill a, a hole for ballast. They'll fill it with gravel, sometimes even lead. And the idea there is, is the farther down it goes, the better. And it stabilizes everything that's going on above the water line. That's what a ballast does. It, it, it brings stability. It counteracts so that you don't go to frightening heights, that don't, so your lows aren't so low anymore, so that you can't list, you know, too far one way or the other and even roll over. And, and the reason I'm I've prolonged this illustration, is this. I feel that most people, and you know, there's a lot of data to prove this, most people, not some, not many, most people, they live their life without ballast. No stability. Just, I mean, if you, their life is, is a catamaran out on a you know, windy lake, and they're just getting kicked around from this point to that point, and they're filled, in, like, uh, engulfed by Panic, just uh, anxiety, uh, good, for good or for bad, right? it doesn't matter. Their nervousness and anxiety and worry is the newest addiction. So if they have something good that happens in their life, let's say they get to the top of whatever that ladder is, okay? They, something good. they get to the top of the ladder, they must stay there. They have to hold that. They need that. They need that top rung or whatever rung they're on. They need that prize. They need that notoriety. And then they make very reckless decisions So because they're worried about the possibility of losing it. Or on the other extreme, no ballast. Bad things happen to them, and then they just come unraveled. They just come. They lose who they are. Worry today is the newest and greatest addiction. It is, I would say, it's the foremost reason that really great relationships explode. A husband and wife are a very close couple, right? You know, something ignites some huge argument, and by the time all the rubble finally hits the ground and someone says, what fueled all that? Usually, 
someone will say, I was extremely worried about something else, and I brought it in here. How many times of you parents, how many times have you said to your little one, you know, when you flame out on them, I'm sorry, I was just really nervous, anxious about other things. Mommy was really stressed out, so this is what happens, right? John Jacques uh, Rousseau said that men are born to be free, but they are in chains everywhere. And the chains is fear, anxiety, nervousness. Most of us are consumed with anxiety. It, uh, it, uh, it, it's, it's, it's just, it is literally destroying our bodies. Ask any medical doctor. Number one cause of, of you know, degradation in your body is stress. It, <laughs> the, the psychological and chemical Stress relief in our country, it's a multi-billion dollar business. We're worried. We're nervous. We're frightened all the time. It's omnipresent. Here's a, here's a fun little fact, kind of weird fun, but uh, the, word worry that, the word that we have in English for worried is from a German word that means strangled or choked. Yeah, that's, that's pretty vivid. Uh, it draws to my mind... This uh, daunting uh, statistic in my life, and it's, it's getting heavier upon me as I've gotten older, because so many people that I know that when they were in their 20s or maybe even their early 30s, they were walking with God. Oh, they loved God. They were centered around making decisions about God, about who they're going to marry and, you know, what, what's, what career they're going to choose. But something strangled them out. And... And what brings to my mind here is, is Jesus talks about different types of souls, have different types of soils. He uses a farming analogy, and he says, these types of people, these ones that I, my comrades, my old guys that I used to run with, the people that were in youth group and leaderships in, in the church, they get wrung out because it says, listen to this, the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches are like a weed thorns and choke them out. Right? Worries, choke, strangle. And listen, I, I don't know if you've met him, but the devil does not ring your doorbell and say, hey, sign here. It, he just works in the ivy and says, a little bit more of this, a little bit more. And then you'll have something that you can't lose. And then you'll worry. Worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches. The four soils, the third one is the one to be afraid of. Today... Here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look about how to be free from anxiety. We're going to look at how to get peace, peace beyond all comprehension. We're going to look at how to have a life that's stabilized by uncommon joy. That's what we're looking at today, a, a, a life that's stabilized by uncommon joy, ballast, ballast in your soul. It starts in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Simple sentence, memorize this one. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. Always, it says, rejoice in the Lord always. Always, I will say it again, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Rejoice means to grab joy. means to have joy. Have joy in the Lord. This uncommon joy, that's what he's talking about. And joy is this inner tranquility. It, it, it's, it's deeper. Do not confuse joy with an emotion. It is deeper than emotion. It is deeper than circumstance. It is the thing that's underneath the water that's stabilizing your life. It's the ballast of your spiritual you know, dimensions. It, it, it is, comes from 
It comes from rejoicing in the Lord. It comes from what we sang about, you're a good, good father, and, and you love me. You're a good, good father. That's who you are. That's who you are. That's who you are, okay? And you love me. That's who I am, okay? That's who I am. That's who I am. That's stability. That's the deepest part of the hull. That's the densest part of our weight, and that's joy. It doesn't mean we're oblivious to pain and suffering and sadness. No, those are emotions and circumstances. Joy is beyond that. So, yeah, we're, you know, we're living lives with storms. Sure, we're getting splashed and knocked around and looks like we're getting taken under, but we come back. We look like we're getting too high, but we don't because of our bows. We can only list one way or the other so far because we keep riding ourselves because of this ballast, this joy, this, this uncommon joy that we have because of who we belong to, right? And so Paul is saying, rejoice in the Lord Rejoice in the Lord, that, thing, that relationship you have. Again, I'll say it again, rejoice. That's what you have. That's your, it's not unrealistic. Again, it's not sad. The opposite of, of joy is not sadness. The opposite of joy is hopeless. You, you, don't, you don't have no ballast. You have, you're on your own. Sadness is, there's people in the Bible that are rejoicing while they're weeping. You might have experienced that. It, it comes occasionally. It's, it's beyond ex, ex, uh, explanation. I'd love to be able to help you, but I can't. I've had that a few times. Uh, it's the inner tranquility. It's not happiness. It's happiness. Joy is the assurance, security. It's this ballast. It's when you say, I have got no, God owns me because of my trust in Jesus Christ. He owns me. That is me. Um. John Newton put it this way. I love John. John Newton says this, 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 this significant security in whose you are is the ballast of life. And he says this joy does two things for you. One, it makes difficult times bearable and the best times in our lives leavable. It makes the most difficult times in our lives bearable and the best of times leavable. Worst of times, sorrow, grief, everything's taken away, but the thing that you have cannot be taken from you. He's a good, good father. That's who he is, and he loves me. That's who you are. That can be taken away. It's, it's, it's the main thing. It's really kind of the only thing, and it's non-refundable. And, and so the best of times, and you get that promotion or that fame or fortune or whatever the thing is, right? The thing of the week, you get that. But you say, but it's leavable. It's not defining me. It's not what makes me me. It's not what counts. It's not what matters. What matters is he's a good, good father and he loves me. Those things are true. That's, that's how I find myself. And the deeper you believe that, we'll talk about how you have to go deeper in these beliefs. We sang about going deeper and deeper still because we have to find ourselves fixated on those things that are true, those promises that are found in the Bible here. But the point is this, is that we're, it's, it's, our, our soul is a, a ship with a deep hull, and every day we're bringing this out. We're bringing, we're bringing this ballast with us. It's, it's this truth, the sentence before the one we read, verse 3, says that our name is written in the book 
Other passages says that our name is written on his hand. Another passage says that our name is written on his heart. All of those are figures of speech to say that we belong to him. He chose us. We responded, in whatever that means, and we trusted that Jesus Christ died for our sins, so we're living in his family. So something good happens in our life, ah, that's great. You know, don't get cocky. You know, something really bad happens in life, really bad. Huh, that's okay. I still have this thing that can't be taken away, this thing that defines me. So today, here's what I want us to do. That's what joy is. That's what rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it again, rejoice. I want to look at three disciplines that help us experience this in a regular way. Discipline means an intentional action on our part, our part to accentuate the grace that God's giving us. Okay, Three things. We'll read the whole passage in just a second, but I want you to be looking for these three things. The discipline of prayer, okay? the discipline of, I think we'll use the word gentleness, and then finally the discipline of God's presence. Those things accentuate the joy. They hyper-densify the ballast within us. Let's look at the passage. We're looking at those three dis- disciplines. Here's the whole passage. We'll start with verse 4 again. It's on the screens. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness, there's the discipline, let your gentleness be evident to all for the Lord is near. Do not be anxious for anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, whoa, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's packed with promises. It, if we, these three disciplines, the discipline of prayer, that means you recalibrate your life and seeing things the way God does. That's what prayer does. Second one is the discipline of gentleness. You have that new expression of ballast, and you bring that grace into other people's lives. Let it be known to everyone. And then finally, you have the discipline of God's presence because you're fixated on these truths. His presence overwhelmed the things you're anxious about and the peace of God, which transcends your comprehension. It comes into your life. Okay, that's how it looks. Let's look at it in detail. He speaks the most about prayer, so we'll start there. We're a little bit out of order, but we'll start there, the discipline of prayer. Look how many times he uses a synonym for prayer, for goodness sake. I mean, three times. Look what he says. It's an order, by the way. Do not be anxious for anything. Don't be anxious for anything. But in every situation, that's all inclusive, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, and it goes on and on. Don't be anxious, don't be fretful, don't go be overly concerned. But instead, but with everything, right, in every situation, but in other words, instead of spending energy on that, you spend all your energy three different times, he says, prayer, supplication, let your requests be known. He, <laughs> um, he's wanting you to re-see your life, listen to these attributes, with, uh, with God who loves you, and is in control of the universe. That's how you see life. That's what prayer does, the purpose of prayer. Those three, you're, you're giving him your request, and as you give him your request, you're seeing God who's in control and is good. He's a good, good father in that mix. The opposite of that is anxiety. Do not be anxious. You know why you're anxious? Because you don't see God in control. You see you <laughs> attempting poorly to be in control. You should be nervous for that. You've, you've you put God over here or you've misrepresented him and now you're in a catamaran on a very windy lake. He says prayer does this. Well, 
But here's, listen. Well, isn't that typical? I come to church, I say I'm anxious, and you say you should pray about it. Good. This could be a lot shorter sermon. Um, you're missing a key element because this changes everything. What does he say about prayer? With thanksgiving. You leave that ingredient out, you've left out a lot of important things about God. Prayer with thanksgiving. That's the key. Ingratitude, Gordon Fee said, this, ingratitude is the first step towards idolatry. Ingratitude is the first step towards idolatry. Move him out of the way, I'll be in charge, and I'm going to be, because I'm grateful. With thanksgiving. What that means is you are acknowledging because, because your, your depth of understanding of who God is, you're acknowledging that he is loving and he is in control. Because if you believe that, you'll be thankful. If you are thankful, you are believing that. So you pray prayers like, you know, Lord, I, my prayers and supplications and details, I'm going to pray these things. But, you know, if now's not the time, if now's not the time, don't give it to me now because you know what's better for me and you love me and you want what's good and you're in charge, so there. If you give me the opposite of what I ask for, there must be a reason because you're smarter than me and you're in charge of the universe and you love me. You see, by, by being thankful, you're acknowledging that he must be good and he must be in charge. Look, when Jesus was talking about prayer, find this interesting, right? When Jesus was talking about prayer, he taught on this. He said, come on, come on, come on, ask, seek, knock, come on, come on, give me a shot. And then what does he say? This is interesting. Best teacher ever. He says this. Look, if you guys, if your, if your son asked you for a loaf of bread, would you give him a rock? If he asked for a fish, would you give him a snake? No. You think you're good. He says, you fathers who are evil know what's good for your children. How much more the Father in heaven? You know why you're not thankful in prayer? Because you think God's a rock-throwing, you know, snake-giving God. And if you prayed like, like recklessly, if you vulnerably, you'd, you'd be thinking, here it comes. I'm, I know I'm asking for a loaf of bread, but he's probably going to give me a rock. So Jesus, the reason te Jesus teaches that section in Matthew chapter 7 is because he knows his audience, every human being, has a demented view of God, and they can't pray in a sense, in a childlike way. He says, you dads know what's good for your kids. You think God does? Yeah, I think he does. <laughs> there's a Garth, listen to me, there's a Garth Brooks song called, I Thank God for Unanswered Prayers. It's a bestseller. Do you know why it's a bestseller? Because so many people could relate to it. So you know that girlfriend you prayed for when you were 16 that someday you would marry, you know? I thank God for unanswered prayers. Right? It, right? Okay, now listen. If that's true when you're like my age, 50, and you're going to go back and tell your 16-year-old self, don't pray that prayer. He's not going to answer it anyway. You're an idiot. Okay, so... The, how about the 80-year-old Matt come back in time and tell the 55-year-old Matt, hey, Matt, you know what, you know, okay? You're going to thank God for this unanswered prayer. Why? Because God is good and God is powerful, so be thankful while you're praying and submitting supplications and those sorts of things. Have this confidence that he's thinking of you in a fond way. He's a good, good father. He's a good, good father, friends. Here's your assignment, okay? Super assignment. Next four weeks, uh, six weeks, we'll get June 1st. 
Between now and June 1st, do this discipline. Discipline of prayer, do this discipline. Get what's called a prayer journal. Get a three-ring binder. Get one of those little, little things you put in your pockets that are sewn together, kind of cute. Okay? Start your day, end your day with prayer. But listen, here's what I'm asking you to do. Write down your petitions. That's what he said. With prayer and petition, put your requests to God. Write them down. Write them down. For six weeks, start your day with prayer, end your day with prayer. Some of you guys want to play varsity? Somewhere in the middle. Okay? Lunch on your drive home or something. But three times, be thinking that. How many of you have done a prayer journal like this? How many of you have been absolutely freaked out about how many requests you drew a line through because God answered your prayer? How many? Yeah, it's crazy. On your most resourceful day, on your productivity day, where you walk around the house going, look at all those check marks. <laughs> that is nothing compared to this prayer journal. Would you let him in your life? Get him in the game. Don't be Do these six words. These are the six words. Memorize these six words, okay? Worry about nothing. Pray about everything. Let's all say that together. Worry about nothing. Pray about everything. With thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. Okay, that's the discipline of prayer. Let's look at the discipline of gentleness. Discipline of gentleness. Verse 5 says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Prayer is bringing God, and you're seeing, you're seeing your situation in God's eyes, and now you're seeing that he is a good, good father, and that he loves you and is in charge, and he's going to do this. He's going to do the right thing. And because of that, you have joy, and joy is your ballast, and the ballast means you're stable. You have a stable soul, and you bring that stability into every relationship. Grace transforms. You can do this because you have this stability. Let your stability be known, your, your gentleness to be known. By, that word means yielding, kind, considerate. It is not spineless. It means selfless. It means you're the guy that can say, no, no, you can do this. Do you know why? Because you, you come to realize, I'm not going to worry about all the little stuff because everything's the little stuff. I'm the little stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, you don't, you don't surrender truth on this. Okay, right. But it's just like, why, why are we arguing? You have so much ballast in your life. You have so much stability. You can't be killed, kinked one way or the other. So just let... Here's, here's where this is frustrating. Look, look what it says, why? Look, why? Why do you do this gentleness? It says, because the Lord is near. Now, that, say, that phrase, Lord is near, is not like, oh, look, he's amongst us. It's more, it means he's coming back. And when the Bible says he's coming back, it means justice will prevail. It means you're arguing and worrying about a bunch of stuff, and God's going to make all of this right sooner than you think. Here's how I apply this in a lot of counseling that I'm involved in. It doesn't matter if the couple's 35 or 75, but sometimes they're, they're arguing with each other, and it's completely devoid of anything of consequence, honestly. And some of them are well-practiced. And I'll say, I'll say a version of this verse. I'll just say, Listen, I want you to see, I want you to understand, the grains of sand in your hourglass are bleeding through. You're going to be dead, and you're going to be dead so soon. One of you is going to be in a hospital bed and, and probably unable to respond, and the other person, the other person is going to be worse because they're going to be standing over this bed weeping in bitterness about all the 
stupid arguments that you've had over lo these many years, and you can't have any of that time back. You can't have that whole afternoon you spent arguing back. That's yours. Good for you. You might have even won. You're a hobby cat on a windy lake. Act like you have ballast. The Lord's coming soon. You don't want to have to answer for this. Stop it. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. You have the power of joy. That's what he's saying. That's how to apply it. The last, what do we have? Uh, discipline of prayer, discipline of gentleness. last one is the, the presence of God. We've got to get some momentum going into this, so I'm going to read the whole section again. But watch, watch how we're going to talk about prayer and gentleness. Then we'll look at presence. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all because the Lord is near. Look, okay, don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And here it comes. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Prayer, it recalibrates all of your life, and you start seeing it from God's point of view, and you start seeing that God is a good, good Father, and He loves you, and He wants what's best for you. Pray away with thanksgiving. With that power of ballast, you go in and you give to other people, right? Your gentleness, your selflessness, and then right here, the presence, the peace of God will guard your heart and mind. The idea there is the presence of God is going to dwarf all this stuff that you've spent so much time and energy on to maintain this anxiety. It's, it's, it, this peace means that you have confidence. Peace means confidence. The opposite of peace is anxiety. Peace means confidence that God's in control and he loves you and it's okay. You believe this in increasing levels, right? I'm going deeper and deeper as you go through life. What got you, your level of faith, what got you through high school or college or whatever, early life, that doesn't help. That's, that you build on that. And you're looking more and more at your past and saying, that's not going to define me, whether it was success or failure. I'm not going to be twisted, right, in the present because I'm stable and I'm not going to be worried about the future. That's not mine to worry about. And you're going to be progressively focusing more on the wisdom of God, the power of God, the love of God. It's, it's a, figuratively speaking, we, have, we all have, have had and will have experiences where we're freshmen in a college and nobody knows us. And, it, and this person says, I, I am not afraid of being alone because I am not lonely. I will not be a slave to fear because I have him. I can't be alone. Why should I be lonely? That's what it says. It's, it, it takes on that thing and says there's an answer. And, this, and, and, and that answer is the presence of God. I want to accentuate something here because it says he will guard the peace of God, guards your heart and mind. Look how he's bringing in the holistic everything, every part of you. Brings in all of you. He's guarding your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. I, I, I elaborate on the word because, again, this, this letter is written to a military town. It's like writing at the Fort Hood. And he and he's particularly chose a word that, they, that rang their bell. That guard is the idea of an army on a protective maneuver. In other words, let's put it this way. 
that he has surrounded you with his army, and he has surrounded, you've got your heart and your mind in there. That's the whole you. And he has surrounded that all with, with the peace, this peace of God in Christ Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever self-coached. It's a great way to get through life. You talk to yourself like, you, like if you give advice to other people, you just say that to yourself. And you look at your little self, okay, put your little self in bed, at 8 o'clock, you know, 8 o'clock, you're like a five-year-old child, and you say, okay, oh, and your five-year-old self says, I'm scared. There's a, b- a bunch of bad guys out there, and you say, yes, yes, yes. There are a bunch of bad guys. It's not the absence of evil. It's not the absence of things to worry about. He's saying the peace of God will guard you. It's the presence of something bigger. It's not burying your head in the sand. It's saying, listen, honey, listen, little self, get in bed because you know dad. You know he's in, the, he's in the army. You know him and his buddies are out there. There's a whole row of infantry around our city wall. And behind that infantry is the cavalry. We've never lost. It's bad out there. But we are protected by, we are, we are, we are on guard. This town is on guard. Your heart and your mind is protected by the peace of God in Christ Jesus. Sleep tight, little one. That's what it means. That's why he chose that word. So the application for this section is to visualize that. Face the hard facts. Do your little drill, you know, in the morning and at night. Write your list out. Don't go to bed after writing your list out. Here's some things, Lord, petition some things. I'm going to be thankful, whatever the answer is. Don't let that be the last thing you think about. Put that on the dining room table. Go to your bedroom. Lay in bed. You're the five-year-old. You're here, you're, now you see your soul in the middle, and you see yourself surrounded by the king's royal guard. That's the peace of God in Christ Jesus that is guarding your hearts and mind. You visualize that, you drift off to sleep just fine, thank you. That's called the presence of God. See how it overshadows and overwhelms the difficulties? That's what God wants you to have. Look at these verses. That's what he wants you to have. He wants you to have that kind of peace, peace beyond comprehension. Let me give you a a picture, like a picture of this peace. Okay, you know the story. I'm sure you've seen it in some context. The night Jesus was betrayed, let's just paint maybe a little clearer picture. Jesus is in a room. He's having a meal, the Passover meal, with some men and some women. But the the 12 disciples are there. They've spent three years with him pretty much 24-7. They know him well. That's the point. And while all this is happening, Jesus knows in his head, he sees the future, and he knows in his head he is moments away from a a, a kiss from a traitor, then a beating, then a trial, then another beating, and then a death sentence that is so heinous that it's illegal for a Roman to even experience this type of death penalty. And when the first domino falls, it's... It's gone. I mean, we're, we're, he knows all that. And in the context of that dinner meeting, he promises this to you and to me. He says this, my peace I leave you. My peace I give to you. I don't give you the peace of this world gives. What's that? That's not even real. Don't let, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let them be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be troubled because I'm giving you my peace. Not the peace that's from this world. This is the peace I want you to give. What's that peace look like? Could I just fill in some more blanks? Here's what this peace looks like. 
12 men spending three years nonstop with this person is having his last meal before his torture and execution, and not one time does one of them come to him and say, you look like you got something on your mind. You look a little, I don't know, antsy, nervous, fidgety, nothing. He washes their feet. He speaks tenderly into their souls. He dines with them. He's telling them what's happening next. That's the peace of God. That's what he wants to give you. He wants to tell you, you got storms, we've got prayers. And then that meeting ends, the dinner meeting ends. Do you remember what he says? He says, there's a huge storm coming. But instead of being afraid, we should go pray. Let's go to the garden. Peter, you better pray especially. Peter falls asleep, and so he has a lot to be afraid of. That's the peace he wants to give you and me. That's the peace that we can have. That's his peace, not of this world. He doesn't want us to be afraid. You want that peace? I think you do. Let me walk you through. Let's do, let's do a little kind of a mini assignment right now. If you, if you would do just kind of a vision prayer with me. In other words, once you bow your head and close your eyes, and I'm going like, to try to put you into a prayer, and then it'll help you maybe see what, what this passage is talking about, the significance of the ballast of joy that we could have. Okay? Okay, I'm, I'm just, so just envision this. Because of circumstances, your fault, or they just happen, they're just life, you kind of lose everything, and you are living in some friend's abandoned mobile home out in West Texas, no running water. You're going to, I don't know, raise some goats for him. Okay? No running water. You get to take a bath maybe twice a week in the spring. That's a half a mile away. But your sheets are, are just stiff with the salt. You're sunburned all the time. Wind is blowing on you constantly. Occasional dust storms. That's your life. Now, here's the thing. You and your family will only be as happy as you are thankful and content. Okay? That's how this math works. You and your family will only be as happy as you are thankful and content. So how long? How long would it be before you quit telling the locals there that you were pretty once or smart once or respected or talented? Oh, look, you were an athlete. You were well-educated. Oh, tell everyone how you used to live in the big city. How long before you gave up trying to define yourself by accomplishments and experiences that you've had? Instead, you just realize that your name is written on his hand. Then all would be well with your soul. How long would you stay out there before you could be content? How long would it be before you stopped telling people about how hard it was growing up in your family? How disappointed you were when this person or that person that you respected, they... They, they mocked you and it hurt you. Or how long would it be before you just got over your past and let go of the things that you've allowed to define you and, and you said, you know what? It is well with my soul because all that I've lost is nothing in comparison that he is good and I am loved. You still in the house? That hot, sweltering mobile home without water. Let's talk about your future, your dreams. You going to hold on to those? You can't. I'm not going to let you hold on. All your hopes and dreams of getting out of this vacant mobile home. 
What if someone rang the doorbell and said, no, 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 not in your lifetime, not in your children's lifetime will you leave here or ever have running water. You will dig holes, you'll put a shack over that hole, and it will be called your bathroom. That's the way always. And that person, that was Jesus that just left. That's who rang your bell. Would you ever accept that? Could you ever be thankful? Or would you always, like, be entitled to more? Do you know who I am? Do you know what this means? Do you know who I could be? Could you, would you find contentment? Is it well with your soul? Are you his? And that cannot be lost. Friends, you were meant to be free. You were meant to be free. And the things you worry about are the things that someone can steal or rust or aren't going to last. What matters is you belong to him. It's a peace that transcends all understanding. If you, can, if you can be free and thankful and content, living out there, you're, it might take weeks okay, or months and years, but you'll smile and laugh and rejoice, and you'll have uncommon joy, and you'll join a huge fraternity of wonderful people like Jacob. Took him 20 years. Moses, 40 years. David, 30 years. Fear the patience of God. But you'd be free. You'd have ballast. Oh, the ballast, the storms you could weather. Lord Jesus, I pray that we could be such people, that we give everything to you so that nothing could be taken. Lord Jesus, we would like to appreciate and understand that your greatness and the the truth that you said you loved us is, is well enough to serve as ballast for our souls stability for our lives, that we would bleed that into other people's lives. We'd be gentle towards them. We'd feel your presence in good times and in bad. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.